Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into Power Athlete Radio. What was sport before carefully planned strength and conditioning programs existed? What was it like when the only athletes you saw in the weight room were the injured ones? Few people remember the days when training for any sport was comprised of little more than running long distance. But Boyd Epley not only remembers it vividly, he was part of a pioneering few who actually reformed this broken system. He's a god at the University of Nebraska and a founder of the NSCA. Here it is, episode 590. sure he doesn't remember but as a young 18 year old football recruit I got uh, I grew up in Southern California went to Nebraska and had the opportunity to sit in your office and uh, go through the recruiting pitch that would have been 1994 but you didn't come I didn't come uh, I ended up going to Berkeley um, <clears throat> my dad made an interesting observation for me he said hey if uh, you know what do you think your chances are of playing the NFL and at the time I didn't know anybody that played in the NFL so I was like, uh, not good. I mean, uh, six foot five white dude, how many of those get to play in the NFL? So I ended up going to Cal just for the fact that uh, I could get multiple degrees there, graduated in four years and worked on my master's and my fifth. So I was a little more interested in the degree than going on and playing. And then I got a chance to go play in the NFL for 10 years. So it sounds imagine like that it, one. It worked out real well <laughs> for you, but you missed a really good period of time at Nebraska. We had a lot of success in that era. Yeah, you know what? I was fortunate. Uh, I went and played in Kansas City next to Will Shields. So I got to play for Will next to Will for a couple of years. And I had met Will on that recruiting trip. So he I think. Class act, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a great, a great individual. So I was very fortunate to get to play with him. Um, you know, played uh, right tackle next to him for his final game. And then when he retired, I played right guard for the Chiefs. So that was a he nice was transition. He was honored this year at the Outland Trophy presentation for all kinds of things that he's given back to the to the athletes industry and what he stands for. And the award was given by Tom Osborne. Yeah, no, Will has been a pillar and not only that, but just somebody to emulate. So I was very fortunate to call him a friend and get a chance to play with him. I mean, worked hard and played at such a high level for so long. It was uh, I still tell people stories about him. Great. Yeah, the uh, I got I was trying to remember who my hosts were. One of them, I think, was Joel Wilkes. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. And then the guard was a kid from Southern California. Real big Maybe dude. Brendan Stye. Brendan Stye. That's who it was. We had John Zadiska at that time. And uh, Aaron Taylor. Yeah. We had some linemen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I had the opportunity to, to sit up there within you in your office. And I remember you had like a full command center and you'd like videos <laughs> and could see all the different squat racks. And you, you basically had like a, a numerical system where we entered like 40 yard dashes and a whole bunch of stuff. And mm-hmm. there was kind of a, uh, a numerical number that popped out at the end. And based upon that number, it was uh, whether or not like, I guess, preparedness ready to play. Yes, that was called the performance index. And uh, that's still available for coaches if they if they want it. They can they can go to epileyadvantage.com. Oh, okay. And that's available. Yeah, I remember uh, as you entered my current numbers, you were like, "Ah, you're not ready yet." I'm like, "No, <laughs> probably a good chance I'll I'll uh, I'll redshirt." But uh, what was interesting is when I went to Cal, uh, we had a guy named Oh God, what was his name? Um, well, it'll come to me in a second. But uh, he was our coach, and we had another guy come in named Todd Rice, and he in, uh, in the off season. Right when we got back from winter conditioning, we ended up doing the metabolic conditioning cycles. 
So the Husker Power deal. And that was like a staple within our training program for the next three years. As soon as you came back from winter conditioning, we would do the metabolic conditioning cycles. And uh, the first time we did it, we all came out of the gate too fast, went too heavy, and everybody was throwing up. People were puking. There was trash bags. You know, and then the next time it came up, we were like, I've been fooled before. I'm going to sand back this thing in the first week and get ready on it. <laughs> well, the that program is so demanding that you have to be very careful or you'll put someone in the hospital. But it develops the athletes faster and better than any other program I've come across. Yeah, I read an interesting thing that the freshmen were were never allowed to do it. You always held them back one year and watched them. All, all the upperclassmen just burn it down and let it just sink within their mind. When I'm ready, one year, I want to be working as hard as these guys. <laughs> well, that's how we started it. Actually, um, when Bill Kramer developed that program for us, and um, we weren't sure what we had. So we decided to have some real experienced, uh, advanced athlete give it a try first. And that was Kevin Coleman, a two-time national shot put champion, one of the strongest athletes we've ever had, and a really super guy. And so he did the program for several weeks, and the progress was phenomenal. So we introduced it in the winter conditioning program as, as an option if, if the, we wanted the 30 linemen to do it. We weren't going to let the freshmen, we weren't going to let anyone unless they had experience. And so we asked Kevin to get up in front of the football players and kind of explain his experience with this and kind of, in a way, challenge them to give it a try. He got up there and he said, you can't handle this program. <laughs> That's all it took. Nice. And we, we got our 30 linemen to do it. Their progress was about what a normal athlete would make in three or four years in six weeks. It was unbelievable. But yet, a little bit dangerous if yeah. you don't do it right. And we've had uh, other coaches across the country put people in the hospital if they go three sets to start out. You don't want to do that. Yeah. Well, we, uh, uh, you know, when I retired from the NFL, uh, I was reached out to uh, by a guy named Greg Glassman, who started CrossFit, to ask if I would come and help them help their develop help them develop their tech on how to train athletes. And so I wasn't necessarily enamored with their program or what they were talking about. But what I was really interested in was their market that, uh, you know, here was this really amazing collection of micro gyms around the world full of people that actually wanted to lift weights and train, um, be it misguided. Uh, you can't necessarily teach effort. And the fact that people were willing to come in and do this stuff was was enticing to me. So I agreed to go out and do it. And, uh, you know, you saw the same thing that, you know, if your training just involves nothing but glycolytic capacity, uh, you know, there's short periods of like, you know, block periodization where it fits within a training model early on, but you have to progress. And the problem is, is, uh, if that is your only training modality, you know, I think it kind of does some interesting things. So when I first came in and I saw what CrossFit was doing, I was like, oh yeah, it's similar to the glyc or the uh, metabolic conditioning cycles, but that's all you guys are doing. So I kind of went in there and championed a little bit of periodization. Like you can use this stuff in short periods and maybe use it in some accessory work, but your foundation really has to be lifting heavy weights and being dynamic and being explosive if you want to train like an athlete. Well, you hit it right. That's for sure. 
Yeah, I mean, it. Uh, so I actually stole the metabolic conditioning cycles and then worked them into the different CrossFit stuff we were doing with the athletes we were working with. And uh, it was pretty interesting the amount of people that I got to test it and found different ways for people to use it within a garage gym setting and how to periodize with one set, two set, and working up to three set, and then kind of waving it back and forth and using it for six, eight weeks. And we still use it in our programs online, different variations. Uh, and it's always, it's become a staple. I mean, just for me, like as soon as it gets cold and I know football's coming to an end, we always end up doing a block of it just because it helps with everything. It's amazing how the body will adapt if you do it in kind of the, the right intensity. You don't want to overdo it and you need to do it if you or you won't have the gains. But uh, Dr. Bill Kramer deserves the credit for that program. What was, uh, you know, that first year you implemented it with 30 linemen, what was that first day like? I don't think we had anybody throw up because we only started with two sets. And that's what I still recommend, that you don't start with three sets. It's just too much. And they can't recover. And, you you know, you have people laying around throwing up and it's not safe. Yeah. No, uh, our coach totally went uh, hammer down three sets and they set up trash cans. And we're trying to get people to, to, to throw up and be sick. And, you know, I mean, I, I like to think that uh, um, when I first came to the CrossFit deal, uh, everybody was talking about rhabdomyolysis. Mm-hmm. And uh, when, exactly. I saw, when I saw the rhabdo and, uh, you know, when people are like, oh, you know, your peas like the, you know, uh, root beer and you have all these issues. I was like, oh, no, uh, we've had that many times. I mean, I can think of many off-season conditioning with mat drills and things we did where you all of a sudden, like later on that day, you have like extreme muscle soreness, like your arms look like like butts because you can't straighten your arms. People are like peeing in there and like, is this supposed to be black? And everybody's like, no, you're fine. You're fine. You're good. And so it was. <laughs> you're lucky you didn't kill someone. Uh, well, but I mean, uh, I like to think that like most football players from an early age, you know, especially with the mat drill stuff we used to do. I'm sure you guys did it, too. Uh, you just kind of dose yourself to the point where like, it, you know, and then nobody's going to say anything. I think maybe it's a different time now where now somebody would say something back then. Nobody wanted to raise their hand. Times have changed. Uh, I came up in an era where athletes didn't lift at all. How was that progression? And more importantly, like coming in and being really, uh, you know, that figurehead first string coach where you're coming from a time where athletes didn't lift and then trying to sell them on the idea of like performance away from the field and in the within the weight room. Well, it happened at Nebraska because they had lost several games in 1966 and 1967 after playing in a national championship game with Arkansas in 1965. But they started doing distance running. And I don't know who advised them. I was a, a junior college athlete in Arizona during those years. And I got a scholarship to Nebraska in 60, at the end of 67. So it would be the fall of 67. And I saw these big, huge monsters. But they were they had been doing distance running for a couple of years because they lost to that Arkansas team. And that was bad advice because there's really no aerobic component in football. And for the listeners that might not understand what I just said, there is no aerobic component in the sport of football. So you should not be doing distance running. And if you are, you're screwing up because the body needs to be developed in a different energy system. A football play only lasts about five seconds on the average 
and then there's about a 50 second rest between plays. Even if you're in a fast paced offense, there's still no aerobic component. So when I came into the University of Nebraska as a junior college transfer pole vaulter, we had these big, huge monster linemen, but they weren't strong, powerful. They, had, they didn't lift weights. They were doing running. And that year, the line coach had been sent around to different schools to learn what they were doing because they knew this wasn't working. They didn't like the results from this distance running. And Cleus Fisher was his name, and he put in an eight-station winter conditioning program in 67. And uh, he wanted – back then, they didn't have videotape like they do now. They had film. So he wanted to make a 16-millimeter film to show the players how to do these eight different stations. And he was looking around – and here I was, an athlete that had lifting in my background. And I was in the weight room almost by myself because no one else was unless they were injured. And he asked me because I had, I seemed to have muscles compared to these other guys. He asked me to be the model for, the, for, that, vid, for that film. So I said, okay. Well, then he asked me to run one of the eight stations, which then here I was an athlete. And, uh, but I did it. And the station he asked me to run was lifting. It was lifting a 47.3 pound bar that had concrete cans on each end. It's a big bar with paint cans with concrete in them. So I had to teach him how to do a, a snatch and a clean and a curl and a press and different things for five minutes. I had him for five minutes. Well, I kicked their ass. <laughs> for five minutes because they're you couldn't you could only rest so much and you had they weren't used to this stuff and the coaches loved it and the next year they asked me to be in charge of the whole program all eight stations and to supervise the athletes in the weight room so that's how i got started it was just kind of a freak thing and i got paid two dollars an hour a couple days a week and uh, immediately I tried to get rid of the distance running because one of those eight stations was a five minute run. I'm going, what the heck here? I knew this is wrong, but there were, the head coach was a guy that jogged with the players as they went around the field house. He was a distance runner, but he's also very smart. <clears throat> so I kept kind of bitching about that. It took me a few years because the athletic trainer really was into it and was a friend of Ken Cooper from Dallas, who was a huge aerobic-minded person and impacted people all across the world in a positive way with aerobics. And there's a place for that. I'm not criticizing it. I'm criticizing it for football because there's no place for it. But anyway, um, that's how I got started. And there was uh, a different mindset back then. Even the first day I got there, I had brought my own pole with me from Phoenix, Arizona. In fact, a, a guy set the world record with that pole, and he gave it to me. He, he, he was a fireman in Phoenix and had set the world record early on at, when he was at Oklahoma State. He was now a fireman in Phoenix. He saw me pole vaulting and came over and gave me some tips, let me have his pole. So the first day I get to Nebraska, I go, it's in, it's in August or 
September. And that's why I'm going <clears> to <throat> take my pole and go out and run because I would run 40 yards, 120 feet with the pole. And that, you don't just do that. You have to kind of practice it because you kind of run sideways a little bit. It's not that easy to do. Just run full speed with carrying a pole. No, I've I've, I've always said that the uh, the greatest athletes and and I, I didn't know you were a pole vaulter. And one of the greatest expressions of athleticism is pole vault. I mean, let's sprint as fast as we can with this big long stick, yeah. and then I'm going to need the uh, the precision to stick it in a hole, and then the you know like the the courage to hang on as this thing basically shoots me wily e. coyote over a you know over a, a like a mark and you know 20 feet in the air. And then I got to somehow land without breaking my neck. So I always thought that that was the greatest display of athleticism I've ever seen. Well, the crazy thing was that I go to the Nebraska had an indoor track. So I go to the indoor track. Well, first I went out on the field and I was running. And the football coach, uh, the fullback coach, he came over and says, get the hell out of here. He didn't want me out there running with this pole. I don't know why. It was like sacred ground football was practicing mm-hmm. and you don't come out here and screw around who the hell are you anyway you know i'm the new guy so i said well there's an indoor track so i'll just go indoors no problem so i go and the indoor track door is locked so i asked around and they said well you need to see the groundskeeper bill shepherd and so i go see bill shepherd and he goes we don't open that track until january during indoor track season why would we need it open now? I said, well, I need to practice. I'm here on scholarship and I'm, I need to work out. He goes, nobody else does. What are you thinking? He said, you need to go see the track coach. So I went to see the track coach and he says, yeah, we don't open that until February when track season comes, indoor track. I said, coach, I came here to pole vault and I need to practice and they won't let me run outside. He said, all right, I'll get that door open for you. How often do you want to come? I said, every day. Every day. <laughs> they couldn't believe that I was kind of a freak. So I started going to practice there every day. And pretty soon the high jumper came and started practicing. Pretty soon some hurdlers came. Well, then they needed hurdles. Pretty soon we had the whole team doing off-season training. And it never had happened before. It was unbelievable. And it was the same in the weight room. They had never lifted before. And I imagine it was that way across the country. It was mind-blowing to me. Wow. Uh, my, man, I, I think uh, when I went to Cal, um, Eric Cohen was the strength coach. And uh, we were had like a ton of fast guys, a lot of East Bay, a lot of you know Northern California guys, a lot of just fast guys. And I remember the head coach came in, and this is before winter conditioning, and said, hey, we're plenty fast enough. We are, you know, uh, you know, we got speed on tap. <laughs> yeah, I, I still laugh at like not only the ignorance of this guy, but like the stupidity and just the, uh, uh, like the hubris. And he's like, you know, we're plenty fast enough. What we need to be is better conditioned. So we are going to change the conditioning test to a one mile test. So a one mile mm-hmm. conditioning test, and for our winter conditioning. We're going to sprint down to the track and do Indian runs where you get in a long line and the back guy sprints to the front and then you kind of do this deal. And so we would have to run down to the track and do a mile of Indian runs and then run back. And that's what we did our condition winter conditioning, like four days a week. (laughs) And then we ran into the same problem uh, I had. That's exactly what I was facing because they would say, how are we going to be in shape for the fourth quarter if we 
what if we aren't in shape? <laughs> I said, hey, guys, the fourth quarter is no different than the first quarter. You, yeah. you have a five-second burst followed by a 50-second rest, and now there's three-minute commercials. TV commercials now are three minutes. If you have any kind of action on the field, there's a timeout, and it's three-minute rest. The body is completely fully recovered. All the energy tanks are full, ready to go full power after every TV break. And it's so hard to wear a team down now that it's ridiculous. Yeah. So we we go out and uh, he changed the conditioning test. And if you were over 300 pounds, you had to run su- uh, 730, sub 730. If you were mm-hmm. under 300 pounds, you had to run seven, seven minutes. So I weighed in that day at 298. And oh, I was wow. like, fuck. So I, I went out and I ran a 658 uh, mile, and uh, which is was smoking for me. And the crazy part is we went out and we didn't, all we did was uh, we didn't sprint that entire year. All we did every day was go out and try to make that conditioning test. Because if you didn't make the conditioning test, when we went to training camp, you had to wake up at 5 a.m. and run it before practice until you made it. And uh, like, I was like, dude, there's no way. And so we end up, I finally ended up making it. Uh, a bunch of our offensive linemen made it. And uh, what happens? I think we went like two and two and eight and absolutely got murdered every play. And I remember the coach being like, you know, oh, you know, you guys have no legs out there. And everybody's like, well, we we spent them on the mile run. And That's uh, right. needless to say, that guy got fired. Well, there should have been a lot of other coaches fired, too. But we had a very similar situation where <clears> – <throat> Our athletic trainer, because of this, Ken Cooper, um, was into testing a mile-and-a-half run or a 12-minute run. Either way, it was the same concept. And ours was a mile-and-a-half run, and you had to run it in a certain time like you, your team did. And I hated it, but I had to put up with it for several years before I could finally get rid of it. But one of the ways I got rid of it, finally was we had a very exceptionally talented defensive lineman. And he, um, he struggled to make that test. And so if you didn't run it, you had to run it again. And then he had to run it a third time. So he, he was a guy we couldn't afford to not have him on the field. He was that talented. So, but I had to go by the rules that were in place at the time, even though I hated it. I took him to the indoor track, which was a brand new indoor track, air conditioned, instead of running it outside in the heat and in a 220 track. And as he was coming around the last lap, I could tell he wasn't going to make the time. He was almost right on it. So I got behind him and pushed him and he made his time. <laughs> and we never told the coaches that I helped him a little, but I, he ran it and I pushed him and he made the time. And after that, I started, I started a campaign to get rid of that test. I created a video with the help of Mike Arthur, who was my top assistant for many, many years, brilliant guy, called Conditioning for Power. And now I, we sold that for a while, but now I, I provide it free to anyone that wants it. It shows how the three energy systems in the body work and how there is no aerobic component in the sport of football. And if you're doing any distance running, you're screwing up. And so I took that video into the football staff office, gave it to the head coach, said, coach, I want you to show this to the staff. And I walked out. 
we never ran distance. We never did that test again. And so in your era that you would have been a Nebraska athlete, we were on top of it and we were trained and conditioned properly. If you recall, the greatest moment in my history was we beat Miami in the Orange Bowl when they had Ray Lewis mm -hmm. and some other just tremendous athletes. If you watch that game, you saw them on oxygen on the sideline and you, you saw them come down the field in the first quarter and just go right down and score a touchdown. They were so talented. But by halftime, we had scored a touchdown because they got tired. In the second half, during halftime, Coach Osborne told them, we got them right where we need them. Just make sure you don't push a guy, or if he pushes you, you don't swing. You don't. We don't need a 15-yard penalty. That's what's going to hurt us. Otherwise, we're better conditioned. We will be the better team in the fourth quarter. We know that. Don't screw up and go hit somebody or anything stupid like that. We need every yard we can get. All right, so second half, Miami goes right down the field and scores again because they recovered during halftime. And they were so talented, we couldn't stop them. In the fourth quarter, they went, it's either seven or 11 series in a row without a first down. I think it's seven series in a row for sure. It might have been 11. Nebraska scored two touchdowns in the fourth quarter to win the game in the national championship. As Osborne's coming off the field, the announcer says, Coach, how did you beat Miami? He said, we knew we'd be the better team in the fourth quarter. And you would have been there. Uh, I know. It's, Dang, John. I, I know, I know. Believe me, it, uh, I... I was happy I got to go to Cal for the education. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it, it would have been great. I mean, it definitely. I just remember when I flew in on that little plane, I saw those cornfields, and then I saw this big stadium. <laughs> and I remember thinking, like, <laughs> I'm, I'm too Where far. Am like, I? Yeah, exactly. Like, like uh, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. I mean, we're not in California anymore. But, uh, no, it was uh, definitely a very cool clique of guys. I, I mean, Brandon Stein, those guys were great. And, uh, yeah. I mean, dude, you guys had a hell of a defensive line with, uh, with Winstrom and his brother. And then, I mean, you guys had some big defensive linemen too. I remember we went out and had drinks with these guys and then they all ended up playing in the NFL, which was funny years later as I'm, you know, the black shirts, right? Yeah. When I met them socially, they were like, did you take a recruiting trip? How come you didn't come? And I'm like, uh, well, well, drinks on you. National yeah. Champion. <laughs> yeah. But they got a chance to play. Uh, well, boy, that wasn't your first national championship. I mean, back in 70 and 71, was that the, the first domino to fall to really spread strength and conditioning throughout the country? Well, because no one really was lifting across the country, we had a, quite an advantage. Um, people have asked me in the past, well, how, how did you know that you could help the football players when they, when you, when they gave you that opportunity? How did you know what to do? Well, you got to remember, I was a pole vaulter running 40 yards with the pole. And my goal was to be as fast as I could. So I knew how to develop my legs to make myself run faster. And that's what they needed. And so we started testing the 40-yard dash. And I made a mistake testing too often. We were testing the 40 every two weeks. Well, that's, you know, we didn't know any better. And so over time, we learned that you don't test at the start of fall camp on the 40-yard dash. You might get a hamstring pull. And, uh, <clears throat> and so we went through an evolution of learning 
how often to test so that we didn't get hurt. And I can remember even when Mike Rogier was uh, was on the team and he ran twice and he wasn't happy with his time. And he asked me if he could run a third one. I said, no, for, you know, you're, you're a Heisman Trophy candidate, which he did win. We can't afford for you to, to uh, have a hamstring pulled. And so, no, you can't run. So he went over and asked Coach Osborne. <clears throat> and Osborne says, no, Mike, it's, um, we've had some injuries when people run too often. And so, no, we don't want you to run a third one. So we were putting the timers away and everything. And uh, we all looked, and there's Mike Bouchier running the third time naked. <laughs> Just dark naked, no shoes, nothing. <laughs> and he didn't run any faster, but we all got a kick out of that. Yeah, every back in the counts. days when the field, no females were allowed in the in that building, <laughs> it was just men in there. Fortunately, and uh, the and and no cell phones. Uh, now yeah. everybody's got a cell phone or a way to video. I mean, yeah, that's uh, it's probably we've lost a lot of good well, content, but we've saved a lot of lives. You think that would have hurt or helped the Heisman campaign? Oh man, they probably would have hurt him. He would have been like <laughs> you know weird display. You know, I mean, it, like things are so convoluted these days. Uh, can you get in a little bit to like, uh, um, I'm so fascinated by the evolution of everything. Like you get in and, you know, you just figure out like, Hey, any type of weight room, any type of, uh, introduction to weightlifting is benefiting these guys. Where did it kind of take, uh, like take roots and all of a sudden now, Hey, let's look at some classical periodization. Like we're going to use these metabolic conditioning cycles and then we're going to, you know, work into, you know, at least what, when I sat in your office, you kind of showed me this uh, almost, it looked like a yearly plan, like an evolution, like this is our block, this is our block, and we're going to do this, and it's all going to meet and culminate here before training camp, and then we're going to have a little bit of, as I remember, like a little bit of super compensation, and we're going to hit this by the first game. I mean, it was really laid out, and I remember even as a 17, 18-year-old kid being like, wow, like this is pretty amazing. Uh, can you get in like how that, you know, like how you got from there, from here to there? Well, even early on, when I was just getting started and Coach Oswin would bring recruits in on Saturday morning, he'd bring them one at a time and he would sit them down with me in our very tiny little space and ask me to design a program for them right on the spot. Well, that's not easy to do. I mean, if you were going to design a program for, for someone say Tex here and it would take you some thought and questions and it might take a half hour, maybe 45 minutes to come up with one that really made sense for his needs. So I, I had to find a faster way to do that because those recruits were coming all morning long. So I had to put stuff into a, <clears throat> kind of a concept uh, and uh, I wanted to show what our facilities look like. I wanted to show, uh, a progression, um, a little bit of who has done well in the program for motivation. Because I think motivation is a real key to selling your program. And also the facility is too. When you when you came, we had a pretty nice facility. Yeah. And if you were in my office, you were, you were in an upper upper office. It was like it a had, command center. It reminded it me of doors. like what Darth Vader sat in. It had like, a door... <laughs> on one side where the athletes could come up from the weight room and it had a door on the other side where guests would come up the public or, or my secretary or somebody could come up a different hallway. And 
my desk was kind of in the middle. So I had a guy put a button in that could unlock that door, this button unlocked that door. So I could have it locked all the time because I had too many things in there I didn't want messed with. I had another button to close the drapes. I mean, I had a facility guy that could do anything. And so we <laughs> we were a little spoiled there. I even had a jacuzzi in my locker room. It was a pretty awesome deal. But having to um, design a program for each kid caused me to write a lot of training manuals. The summer conditioning sometimes was a calendar, an actual calendar with the training on it. <clears throat> I tried all kinds of ways to spread the word and so that the, the athletes didn't have a lot of questions what they were supposed to do. This is what this is what the plan is. This is why it is. This is how it is. And it seemed to work. No, those dudes, uh, the, the most impressive thing to me, uh, your office was cool and the weight room was cool, was actually the training table. So uh, they, I think it was every athlete got like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And this is before like that was even a deal. When I went to Cal, we only had training table uh, during the season on nights we played like once a day for dinner, but Nebraska was so far ahead. They had it and it was all somehow paid for the athletic department. And it was uh, like, I remember we went into the training table and there was a chef with a barbecue cooking steaks. Well, this is what winners do. John. And I remember thinking like, Oh my God, no wonder these dudes are so big. They like <laughs> eat steak for every meal. And, uh, it was uh, like, that was impressive. I mean, and just so far ahead, I mean, to have a training table and to have that level and that level of training, like, uh, you know, I took trips to Colorado, Nebraska, SC, UCLA, and Cal. And, I mean, Nebraska was like 10 years ahead of every, you know, in terms of not only weight room, but facilities, the way they did things. Like, you know, there was no secret, like, why they were successful. And all their dudes were all big and strong. The training table actually was started in 1939, before I was even born. And uh, when I went up there, uh, the head athletic trainer was in charge of the training table. And um, I had an assistant, a, a young assistant named Dave Ellis. And he he was really interested in nutrition. And so I kept uh, kind of letting him run with that. And eventually, uh, the athletic director put me in charge of the training table and I hired Dave Ellis to run it. And now today, Dave Ellis is in charge of it. And he has multiple chefs. He's currently building, I think, a 25,000 square foot nutrition area in a new building that isn't done yet. It's going to be a couple of years yet before the building's even done, a new weight room and so forth. So Nebraska currently is, is reaching out to be the leader in these facilities again. And during your time where you visited, we were dominant, dominant in both those areas at that time. I wonder now in college football if like those facilities and the weight rooms and this kind of race to create these mega facilities so that they can somehow entice a bunch of 17 year uh, and 18 year old kids to coming there. I mean, is it uh, like window dressing? Is it necessarily really necessary or is it just, hey, you know what? We got money to spend and we want to look to be the best. You know, the rules have changed and I'm not sure why, but when you came, uh, I'm not sure what day it would have been but on saturdays on game days we would have a demonstration in the weight room for recruits and we maybe have 20 or 25 recruits in that day and i would have sophomores or, or red shirts people that aren't quite 
going to play in the game that day, but still were part of the team and had made great progress. Um, I would have them demonstrate the major lifts on that big record platform that you saw. Yeah. When, when 1981, we built that build that weight room in the West stadium. It's no longer there. That is all a study hall area right now, but we, we built a newer weight room since that, but the weight room you saw was what we considered the largest in the world at the time. And it had a big record platform that you could, you weren't allowed to walk up there unless you had uh, an index of 500 points or more on all, on all the tests. And, or if you won the Heisman or the Lombardi or the Outland, then you were allowed to walk up there. Otherwise, no one was allowed to go up there unless they were asked to come up and demonstrate. And so we were trying to show the recruits what we had. And I had a 100-inch video board up above. So when we would talk to the recruits, they could see examples of progress made. And we kind of had it figured out that an average guy is going to improve at least two tenths of a second on his 40 yard dash and a certain number of inches on the vertical jump. Just from the history, we could kind of tell a guy, here's where you are. Here's where you, you probably are going to be if you just follow the program. And some kids do more, some kids a little less, but you're going to make progress if you come here. And that's, that kind of sold itself. I think the facility being clean and impressive and, with school records on the wall and all that, I think helps um, in recruiting an athlete too. They, the environment. One other thing I did, but I, I wasn't able to do it very long because the uh, the airlines uh, changed how they X-ray everybody. When when a, like if you went to a school and the strength coach gave you his business card and said something to you nice you know here's a card if you ever want to contact me i gave out a metal card not forever but just a certain period of time i would give the recruit a metal business card and said if you choose to come here great if you don't i will still help you just give me a call so i had uh, people like um, ben pluckman national champion discus thrower from missouri on our program he chose to go there, but his brother came to Nebraska. Uh, so anyway, we were helping people all over the country that were, weren't even our own athletes. Mm -hmm. wow. And I think, I think that creates a great environment and momentum and people like you and, and you're the good guy instead of some jerk that they didn't like when they visited. Yeah. I understand you, you began the, the NSCA. So is that, opportunity where you gave back to athletes did that then spark up this to give back to coaches and make sure they were doing their best to empower athletes well not really what happened there <laughs> was a different reason okay well during these early years uh what was going on it wasn't strength coaching it wasn't such a thing as strength training or strength coaching what was out there was bodybuilding I mean, Mr. America was, was in, in the 40s and uh, been, been around for many years. So you got bodybuilding, you got weightlifting, which had been around for a long time with Bob Hoffman and uh, York Barbell and people like that, and uh, being successful in weightlifting across uh, the world. And then you had powerlifting, which came in in the mid-60s. Women bodybuilders 
weren't uh, didn't exist yet. It was just the men. And so I, when I was starting out in uh, 67, 68, 69, in that, I was an athlete. But as soon as I got to 1970, 71 and 72, I decided to give myself a three-year window because I was now the strength coach at Nebraska. And I wanted to learn all I could about those three areas because there were experts in those three areas. There was equipment made for those groups. There was no strength coach to call up. Mm -hmm. There was no expert to call up. There was no person making equipment designed for athletes. It was all these competitions. So I entered them. I entered all of them for three years. I won Mr. Nebraska, 1970, 71, and 72. I won Olympic weightlifting in the Midwest and was the outstanding lifter. I won the powerlifting in the Midwest and was the outstanding lifter. So I was into all that to see what was going on. And I, true to my word, in 73, I quit competing. I still hosted some meets and and brought people together and um, judged. There was a judge at some big meets and got invited to judge the Mr. America competition in 1977, I think it was, in uh, California. And uh, they had elephants coming down the street Mr. America prayed with a Mr. America on each on each elephant. It was <laughs> a big deal. And the National Physique Chairman, I think his name was Ralph Countryman, something like that, might not be exactly that, but uh, he was going to retire and he asked me if I would like to be the National Physique Chairman. Because uh, there was a guy in, in Nebraska named Perry Rader in Alliance, Nebraska, that was, owned a magazine called Iron Man Magazine. So he competed with Bob Hoffman's Strength and Health and Muscular Development magazines. And so I was on the edge of all that, but I didn't like what I saw at this Mr. America competition. Women weren't competing yet. It was unheard of for women to be involved, but the men were on steroids and you could see it. And they were freaks. They were freaks of nature. They had shoulders the size of basketballs and they could hardly talk. They could hardly walk. It wasn't what I wanted to get into. So in 1977, that was, that was just not what I wanted, not what I was looking for. And I had studied these three areas to pull out what I thought would help our athletes. Mm -hmm. I came home and sent a letter out to every college and asked them what they had. Well, equipment, um, how many bars, how many sets of Olympic weights, whatever they had. And I took that information and created a directory of strength coaches, the national directory of strength coaches. Well, then people start saying, well, you should probably have a convention or something, invite these people and let's get together because you, these people are interested in helping athletes. They're not the weightlifters, the, the bodybuilders, those kind of guys. They're, they're this new breed of people trying to help athletes. So I said, man, that's a lot of work. I, you know, that, that's, I'm not necessarily wanting all that. But they said, you're the guy. You got to do it. I said, well, how about if we just join the trainers? They have an organization. And 
1977. They're going to meet over here in Las Vegas. Maybe we could just join them. So Jim Williams was, was my first assistant and he had gone to Arkansas. And then, um, so I said, I could use your help, Jim. So meet me in Las Vegas at the trainers convention and, and we'll promote this and get a group of guys together and we'll create a strength training organization, but we'll have to pay a membership to the trainers to be part of their organization so we can have our own organization, double membership. Well, nobody liked that idea, but by the time uh, I got ready to get on the plane, a guy named Dan Riley, who was a strength coach at Penn State, he was ripping me on the phone saying, you're making a big mistake. I know you want to get these guys together, but we don't need the trainers. They have different mindset, the different interests. They're all about strength and health. Uh, or they're about the safety. They're not about imp improving performance. We're about improving performance. This is a mistake. He said, you need to do this yourself in Lincoln. Forget the trainers. So he talked me into it. And then he didn't even come to the first <laughs> meeting in Lincoln. But anyway, he had a big influence. So I had to get on a plane, fly to Las Vegas, find Jim Williams, and cancel and, and be there with a sign. Meet, we're meeting in Lincoln, Nebraska, July 27th in 1978. And so in, in July then, 76 people came to Lincoln, Nebraska, and we created the National Strength and Conditioning Association. And now it has certified over 65,000 strength coaches. It has um, like 15,000 members in Japan. It has, I'm not sure how many in China, and a new organization just was founded in Germany. Something I'm very proud of. Yeah, we both had fortunate opportunities to speak at the coaches conference uh, a couple times. Uh, yeah, it's cool. I mean, the, the, the power of those conferences and then as a, a strength coach, just getting into the wave of things in the uh, 2010s, still a lot to learn. But I mean, the, the tools are in place to provide access to coaches like yourself. But, uh, you know, even those tools are, asked, are, are in place. I mean, um, really, the like I, I think the maturation process for a strength coach is mentorship. You know, like uh, as a young strength coach, you kind of mentor under, uh, you know, a more established individual, kind of learn their system, hopefully you develop over time and find new people instead of just parroting somebody else's. Mm -hmm. But can you get into a little bit of that mentorship piece and, and how important that is? I think for, for people that are listening to this podcast or strength coaches that are listening to it, like that piece, I think, has become so not necessarily undervalued, but because we have so much access now to be able to, you know, Zoom calls, emails, text messages, uh, you know, we can drop in anywhere. That idea of actually going and physically meeting with somebody and mentoring underneath them is so valuable. Well, it's changed. And uh, there's a rule that the NC2A came up with that has absolutely hindered uh, what you're talking about. And it uh, it's a shame. And it's because football coaches were hiring individuals and calling them strength coaches. The NC2A made a rule that you could only have five strength coaches work with football. 
that you could not pay any graduate assistance beyond that. Anyone helping beyond that would have to be volunteer. At one time I had 33 assistants and when football came in, most of those were in the weight room helping them. And so there was tremendous supervision and maybe a third of those were female. Now it is almost impossible for a female to have an opportunity to work as one of the five strength coaches for football because there, there's so many men in the field to choose from. Uh, in fact, right now, I don't know of one that I could give you an example. They're, they're kind of have, they have to kind of choose to work with the other sports. And I think that's wrong because some of the best strength coaches in the country are female. They're smart. They know, they know more than just strength. They know the nutrition side. They're excellent and they're good motivators. So I think that NC2A rule is, is really a poor decision because what happened with football is they've created something called an analyst. And I don't think there's a limit on how many analysts you have. So schools have had to build new office spaces for all the analysts that they have now. And they have senior analysts. And I mean, it is really destroyed the concept of a mentor program for strength and conditioning. You're limited to these five, four assistants plus the head guy getting paid for football. They've now become part of the football staff, which means they get tremendous salaries. Uh, I looked at something just yesterday that someone else had produced and it said the average salary for strength coach is like $70,000. Well, the head strength coach at Nebraska makes $600,000 because he's part of the football uh, staff. Part of the 10 coaches that get paid and the athletic director determines, so here's 5 million or here's this many dollars for those 10 and you decide how that works. That's not the way that it was when I grew up and came through the system and created whatever I created. That wasn't the intent. And uh, so I'm not happy with that at all. I'm not happy with the NC2A for doing that. I think it needs to be changed now and get it fixed. And uh, the people who volunteer, why should you have to volunteer to learn how to be a strength coach? You should be getting paid something to be there, put in your time, learn the trade, and it would help everyone. Yeah, it was a part of that free. Uh, we, I, I understand it was the Nick Saban rule is, is labeled among strength coaches. Yeah, but uh, like, uh, I mean, we've talked about this. What does it matter? I mean, they're paying kids to play anyway. So, I mean, uh, <laughs> like uh, as a, you know, uh, NFL player, if uh, if, if a, a school approached me and said, hey, we want to bring you in as a strength coach to work with our offensive linemen in the offseason. Like, I mean, are we looking to create the best product possible or is the NC because the NCAA has this idea of like somehow they're trying to put these rules in for fairness. But at the end of the day, like. Uh, what, what, uh, what's the fairness factor for, you know, a small school opposed from a major school that gets to play on national TV. So, I mean, it's kind of a, a I think it's stupid. I mean, uh, the, the NCAA, like anytime any of the rules have always come out, it just ends up feeling like uh, a poor choice. Like, I mean, the fact that they only limited, I, I like, so our scholarship checks, you can laugh at this. We're like 740 bucks a month and we weren't allowed to live on campus. So, uh, my rent was 475. So I just, you know, a few hundred bucks, my mom and dad kicked me a few hundred extra. So I had about four or $500 a month to live on. 
And uh, we were only allowed a training table one day or during the season at dinner. And so, uh, like the, you know, we were so far below the poverty line that it was, it was unbelievable. I mean, like I remember people being like, you know, end of the month and it's like, Jesus, how the hell are we going to eat? And yet, uh, you know, all these other schools are able to do this and this. And it's just, I don't know, man, I'm, I've never been a huge fan of the NCAA and, and their rules. Well, I can remember four years ago on my birthday, which is a June 2nd, I was introduced to three or four new uh, volunteers for football strength coaching. And one of those is still volunteering today. And that is over four years ago. How can you survive four years as a volunteer? I mean, the NC2A needs to really look at this and address this. And sure, you can have five full, fully paid strength coaches, but you've got to provide some kind of benefit to these people that want to learn and are willing to sacrifice and put in their time to help the profession and make it safer for the athletes. So I'm hoping someone can get that fixed because it's a problem. Yeah, maybe the only career choice in which you need a master's degree to get an internship. The um, yeah. yeah, it is it is a challenge, and there there are some coaches, unfortunately, that almost take advantage of this because their budgets themselves are so low that they just are force fed volunteers, and then it's them holding on and fighting for their own personal position, and then one, two, three volunteers just so they can maintain any level of sanity let's tell you what i did at nebraska um my first assistant was jim williams and he got hired right away by arkansas and 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 when i say assistant these weren't paid the second one went to um, um, ucla don swanbaum and the third one uh the university of miami uh hired him and, and then they asked me to design their weight room for him and so I came down there, and that one man bought all the equipment for the weight room, a very wealthy man. And so Steve Bliss uh, put that in. And then just a year or two later, uh, Woody Hayes was at the Orange Bowl, met Steve Bliss, was practicing at their facility for the bowl game, called me up and said, hey, I met this little guy. You think I should hire him at Ohio State? I said, yes. So Steve was the first string coach at Miami and the, and the first at Ohio State. None of those guys were paid. So my fourth assistant was Mike Arthur. And I went to the athletic director and I said, Coach, I can't keep losing these guys. I train them and they help me and then they're gone. Now I got to train the next guy. I don't have time to do that because you keep adding the other sports. You know, basketball was second, then baseball. And then all of a sudden, one day I had seven women's sports. Never got a penny extra salary, but I needed help. And so he said, okay, I'll give you 4,000 a year for Mike Arthur. And that, that seemed to work. And Mike Arthur is still there today. Um, and he was my number four. Well, then I, I got a, a facility guy that came in. He, he was an expert and he could build anything, a welder, carpenter, electrician. And he really made an impact in our program because I was in a building mode and we had to build squat racks and power racks and electrical things and videos and all, all this stuff. Randy Goble was his name. 
And I, I needed him to get $4,000. So that it was kind of equal. So I had my number one was Mike and my number two was Randy. And those two guys were awesome. So I went back to the athletic director and he, he said, go talk to this new women's AD. Well, you know, she didn't have any money because she had got her budget from Bob Devaney, the athletic director. So I went to see her like he told me to, and she laughed and she says, boy, did you know that I don't have any money? Every penny I get is comes from Bob's budget. Says, there's no way. So I went, I went back to Bob Devaney and I said, I wanna send a letter out to the ticket holders. He goes, and what do you want? What are you doing? I said, I want to ask for $35. He goes, I don't want you bothering those guys. I said, Coach, I need help. These guys, I need to keep these guys. He said, Well, I don't want you bothering my donors. I said, How about if I take the list and show it to whoever you choose to look at it for me? And they cross off any name that they recognize. He goes, well, that sounds fair. Okay, so the list was only like 12,000 people owned 76,000 seats. So I took it to the business manager and he crossed off about a thousand names. You know, the bigger names that you would recognize, wealthy people in the community and so forth, banks and so forth. And so there was like 11,000 left. I sent him a letter and asked for $35. And I got back over $40,000 on one request. So not only was I able to help that Randy Goble, I was able to create the Husker Power Club, Booster Club. And we ended up raising over $2 million and it was dedicated to my staff and not equipment, not other departments, to the strength coaching staff. We put 300,000 in an endowment so that there'd be interest coming off of it each year. And that's what I would give to the staff. The deal was not a penny would ever go to me. And I got audited every year at whenever they wanted. And it was a good thing. And so I encourage other programs out there to do something like that. As long as they do it within the rules and they don't take any money for themselves, it should work for them to be able to help out their staff. And it made Nebraska work. It made it work. Because at one time I had like 33 people that I considered my staff. And that included people working at the training table and nutrition and so forth. And we also had a psychologist. We had a performance team. We had it going and it made an impact. Have, uh, have they been able to extend it? I mean, um, you know, I, uh, like what year did you retire and have you been able to stay on as uh, almost like an advisor to make sure that this is extended through? Actually, the athletic director, when uh, they built the new building on the north end of the stadium, and the athletic director asked me to oversee the design and the construction of this new Tom and Nancy Osborne athletic complex. And so I, I said, well, I'll try to do both. He goes, no, you can't do both. You're gonna, we're going to have to hire different strength coats because you're going to be too busy. Well, he was right. Um, I tried to do both, but there, there were decisions every day that just, I mean, 
where to put a sidewalk, where to put a concourse, what kind of restrooms, I mean, where we were going to put displays and all these decisions. Uh, it was an amazing project, skyboxes and so forth. So I had to give up the strength training. And um, then he and I kind of had a disagreement, right? Uh, just a month or so before the building opened. He uh, hadn't he hadn't raised enough money to finish the project um, because he fired the head football coach who was very popular at the time. And the fundraising kind of dried up. So he ended up somehow finagling that $300,000 that I had raised for my staff and had to use it for the building, which I wasn't real happy about. So I ended up leaving and going to the NSCA building in Colorado Springs, full-time working there. So I was there about eight years. And then the next Nebraska athletic director invited me to come back. And uh, so I, I ended my career at Nebraska as uh, with a gap in between. And so that Husker Power Club still exists. It's, it's, it's not called the Husker Power Club. It's called something different now, uh, the Power Club or something. And... Um, so I don't have anything to do with it anymore. I retired in July of 19 or 2019. So 2019, I retired and um, they are building a new building now that will have somewhere like a 40,000 square foot weight room. And I told you a 25,000 square foot nutrition center. It should be pretty incredible. Um, but I don't have anything to do with that because I have retired. Okay. Nice. How do you feel about the, uh, um, you know, the NCAA with their changes this year in terms of paying players and allowing players to go out and start marketing themselves? And uh, I mean, I know well, how I feel about it. I just, I'm curious I, to know how you do. Well, I don't think the NCAA had any choice there. It wasn't their decision. It wasn't their preference. It's not the way they want to do things. They, um, they have been very controlling through the years and trying to do the right thing. I'm not criticizing them so much, except for that one rule they put in place. They tried to fix a problem. They created a bigger problem. Okay. And sometimes that happens, but I think their intention is good, uh, but they've lost the power now. And the, in, the uh, college football is basically like the minor leagues. Now it's, it's going to be out of control with this NIL. Their people are going to decide how much money they will make before they transfer to a school. It's going to be upfront. It's going to be ugly. And schools that have a lot of money are going to have great teams. And uh, that's not fair. I mean, the NC2A's lost, lost the battle. They, they tried hard, but they, they're not going to win this one. Yeah, the uh, transfer portal I thought was the death of college football. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I came in as a rookie, and uh, you know, I'm sure you did too, uh, or you you saw it for years. You know, you come in as an 18 year old kid, and you're competing against you know 22, 23 year old men. I mean, I think when I showed up to college, I was six four. I grew to six six. I grew two inches in college. Uh, didn't own a razor. You know, when I showed up at 18, I mean grew into the, you know, physically into being a, a player that I wasn't necessarily at 18 years old. 
And, uh, you know, these kids are, it seems weird to me that all of a sudden, hey, I'm not playing. I'm being screwed. I'm going to put myself in the transfer portal. Coach hates me. Yeah, coach hates me. Uh, you know, and as a young 18-year-old kid, I mean, uh, you know, not physically mature enough. I mean, shit, coaches rode your ass. They worked you. You know, you thought they were being mean to you, but they were just trying to, you know, get you out in, into being the best you were. And then all of a sudden, you know, my, uh, you know, I end up going and being a four-year starter. But, you know, if I had based my career off of that first year, I would have been like, you know, what am I doing here? Is there someplace better? But there was no other option. You got to stay the course. You've made the commitment. Show up and, and work yourself in. And then, you know, when you're 22, 23 and you know, you're physically or big and strong and able a chance to go on and play in the NFL, um, it just it, like to allow an 18 year old kid who's got the mental capacity of like an amoeba uh, to be able to make these decisions. I mean, I, I look back. I mean, there was never a point in my life where I was probably dumber than when I was 16, 17 and 18 years old. And to allow these kids and their parents who weren't very sophisticated to make these decisions feels like a travesty. I agree. And we haven't seen the worst of it yet. Yeah, it just feels uh, I, I just shake my head with these transfer portals, because then if these kids enter their names in and they don't get picked up and they got to stay at their school, then, you know, the coach is pissed at them anyway. Like, hey, this kid doesn't want to be here. Why do we have him here? Right. We we were spoiled uh, being in an era where the coach was in charge and was able to motivate players to work harder than they knew how to and benefited from that. And now it, it's going to be harder to motivate a player to do the kinds of things. <laughs> Talk about that circuit. You put somebody through one of those circuits, you're going to, you're going to lose half those kids. <laughs> do, you, they go, do, you remember, uh, do you remember a couple of years ago when Oregon – I uh, got in a heap of trouble where they had a little off-season conditioning. It was Iowa. Oh, was it Iowa? Yeah. Okay, yeah, was it Iowa? Where well, kids- oh, maybe. I mean, there's a number of Yeah, there, there's a number of them. But the, the workout was like 225 back squats. That and, was Iowa. Yeah, and prowler pushes. And these kids ended up, you know, uh, showing up. Like, they made the mistake of, uh, you know, bringing these kids back. And this was their first, you know, workout after, you know, uh, you know, winter break and the kids didn't show up in shape. And of course, as you know, when you go after the bowl game or when the season ends, you hand them, Hey, here's your off season workout, your winter conditioning workout, be prepared because the first day back, we're going to hit the ground running. Like that was the standard we got every single year. And I went home and trained the whole off season or a whole winter because I knew they were going to come off and try to break a stick off in us. On that first day back, and the dudes that didn't were going to pay the price. And so they, similar deal, and they bring those kids back, and it was like 225 back squats and prowler pushes. And, I mean, it, it was nothing that a college football player who had actually done any form of training wouldn't be able to execute. And all these kids got rhabdo and all these people that know nothing but feel that they, you know, their opinion matters spoke up about it. And uh, I ended up reaching out and figuring out, finding out what the workout was, and we did it that day. And it was, uh, it, it was nothing. I had uh, moms of three that were able to do that workout, my wife being one of them, 225 back squats and prowler pushes, and slayed it and crushed it. And she's like, you mean college football players were, were getting rhabdo and peeling out of this thing? I had moms do it at 225. And, uh, you know, and so what pissed me off was that everybody was so quick to blame the strength coach or, the, you know, these assholes and this. I'm like, what about their responsibility? You get a college scholarship. You're an adult. Uh, or consider an adult, you're a, a college football player who's like the emphasis is put on you for you to be ready. The coach tells you to be ready and you show up out of shape. And, you know, where does the responsibility fall on these individuals? 
Well, at that point in time, not very many people knew what the word rhabdo, what it really was. And they weren't looking to prevent it. Um, so we, we did learn some things from that incident. Um, I think Iowa got a bad reputation from that. And even I was at the NSCA building at the time, and I don't remember what I said, but whatever I said pissed off Chris Doyle. And the next time I saw him at a convention, he wasn't very happy with me. But I, I didn't mean to do that. So I apologized to him. Hope, hopefully he accepted that well enough. Because I, I, that wasn't my intent. Yeah, the, uh, but I mean, you know, we came in and did the metabolic conditioning cycles. And, you know, and we people knew that if you didn't show up or if you didn't do any training in the offseason, that first day was going to suck. So do, you know, save yourself the embarrassment of looking like a, a jerk and thrown up or, you know, fallen out when other people had been training. And I think part of this thing goes back to, uh, like, you know, we don't throw the emphasis back on these individuals. Like, um, you know, you're getting a college scholarship, which I know today seems like nothing, but to me, that was a big deal. They pay for your books. You know, we were living below the poverty line, but we got the opportunity to go play football and go to a school that I probably couldn't have got into naturally or, uh, you know, without football. And, you know, part of that is I felt like a personal responsibility that if I was going to show up, I was going to show up in the best shape I could and give myself the best chance to be successful. Kind of like when I went to, when I went to class, uh, I wasn't going to show up unprepared and not study for the test, just like I wasn't going to show up to football practice or off season, not in shape. Well, it's too bad you didn't come to Nebraska because the group that you would have worked with was a unique group. And as seniors, they came to me and they wanted a different program. They had done the program for a couple of years and made great progress, but they wanted more. And so they asked for a six day program instead of a four day program. Everyone else, the entire team, all the other sports had some kind of a split routine, four day program. And they called it and they wrote it up on a piece of paper. I still have it here somewhere. And it was called the real deal. And I said, okay, it looks balanced. It looks fine. And I let them do it. So I had to come in like on Sundays and stuff and help them. And they, they, it bonded them together. And you would have been part of that group. They would, yeah. they were the best offensive linemen we had. Dave Remington was tremendous before that and Dean Steinkiller, but as a group across the line, these guys, <laughs> you would have been part of that real deal. Yeah, no, I loved it. It would have been nice. Um, I'll tell you this. I, I probably would have made a different selection had I known I was going to go play a decade in the NFL. Just for the mere fact that, uh, you know, at the time, I just figured uh, I'm going to use football to be able to get to a really good school, you know, uh, graduate and then be able. And, and my, my goal was actually to go to law school. So I had applied for a scholarship to go to Bolt Hall, which is the, Bull, uh, is the law school at Cal. And mm -hmm. uh, when I ended up getting drafted, I figured... I don't mean, how long do I play like a, a year or two, maybe make a little bit of dough and go back to law school. And then a couple of years turned into 10. So uh, it was uh, a little bit different, but yeah, I mean, it, uh, believe me, as I was sitting there and you guys won the national championship in 94 and 95 as a freshman sitting at Cal, seeing how bad we were and being like, ah, shit, I could have gone to Nebraska and gotten two national championships. Ah, shit made a mistake, but yeah, you know, it, it ended up working out in the end. Well, we had some up and down years, um, Actually, when we won in 70 and 71, we were in the top 10 in the nation 20 years in a row. 
And it was like, we kind of got complacent with that. And um, we dropped out of the top 10 and went like 21st or something. And it was like, what the hell happened? So <clears throat> we had a get right session at the start of winter conditioning one year because we were averaging 40 absences a day from the program. And I had 287 players. Oklahoma had 66. We had so many walk-ons that I couldn't even tell where the 11 starters were in the group. I couldn't, I couldn't. And I, I went to Coach Osborne. I said, Coach, I want to cut 100 players. And he laughed. He said, what are you talking about? I said, Coach, I get, in winter conditioning, I can't even see the guys I'm supposed to be getting ready to start for you and watch their progress unless I go back and get a piece of paper and figure out what group they're in. We have too many people. He said, well, okay, what do you want to do? I said, I want to train them. I want to get rid of them. He said, how about if we just have them train at a different time of the day? Uh, I said, well, we could do it at, we normally run at three. We could run that group at two. He says, no, that's when we have passing league and the quarterbacks are throwing with the receivers before, before the actual workout. So the, he said, well, what about that indoor track? Remember I talked about this dirt, tr dirt track. So we took a hundred guys and we called them the dirt group and they trained in this <laughs> and they didn't water it down because it wasn't that time of year. It was terrible. And so the only player that came out of the dirt group was named Mitch Crink. He's the only, he ended up playing in the NFL a little bit. Uh, he's the only one that came out of there because the next year he let me cut those guys. So we basically averaged about 180 players for winter conditioning then and had a certain number of groups and a certain number of people in them. And I was able to, to uh, put in some new motivational techniques then. And I, I told them we have three groups in this, in this auditorium where I'm talking to them. We have groups that do exactly what I ask them to when I ask them to. And we have a lot of those. So I call that the want to group. And then we have some that are here because they're maybe their brother played here or their dad played here, or their grandpa or their aunt wants them to be a Nebraska Husker or whatever. So they're here because they have to be. And then we got guys that I call jerks because they're the ones missing their workouts. And we're going to eliminate those today. I said, if you don't want to be here and you don't want to do the workouts, we're going to have a six-week winter program, and we're going to allow you one absence because uh, things come up. But if you miss again, don't come back. And I said, but today we're going to eliminate the jerks. So if you don't commit to doing this program that we're about to do, you can leave right now. So I went over to the door, and nobody left. So I went back to the blackboard and I erased the jerks. I said, all right, now we got two groups. And I'd really like to have one. So I'm asking you guys to put on this red shirt. And I handed out 180 red shirts. So I want you to wear this red shirt every day that you come to work out, four days a week. When we go to run, when we go to lift, you're going to wear this red shirt as a reminder that you've made a commitment to do the program that we're asking you to do as a team and we're going to make progress like you've never seen they all put on the red shirt 
I said, now, if you're committed to all this, and it took me about half hour to tell them all the stuff we were going to do, but <laughs> you're committed to this program, and you're going to do everything, then I want you to stand now. Boom! They all stood up, and it was got chills down my back because it was unbelievable momentum. The linemen went 6,000 workouts without an absence. Wow. And so when it came on Monday, the last day, we were going to test on Wednesday, got them together, and I said, guys, your progress has been tremendous. Uh, I expect normally we break maybe 15 to 17 school records when uh, we test. I expect to, you to break more like 50 school records. They go, 50 school records? I said, you've earned it. You guys are going to be amazed. You're in such great shape. You have done the job. On Wednesday, they broke 78 school records. Unheard of. Progress was unbelievable. That's what led to those two national championships in the 90s. It's uh, it's pretty amazing as a strength coach when you when you think about the amount of time that a football coach works with an athlete opposed from the amount of time that a strength coach works with an athlete in college. I mean, uh, you know, during the season we worked with our strength coach or our position coaches and maybe we saw them a little bit in the off season. But for the most part, uh, the strength coach, you know, almost 10 to 1 was the you know individual that we dealt with most of the time. So it's always amazing to me that, uh, you know, whenever like they're like, oh, this team's not doing well, let's fire the strength coach. And I'm always like, ah, how come the strength coach lamb. always becomes a sacrificial lamb? It's so unfortunate. Yeah, I was fortunate to be Tom Osborne's only head strength coach his 35-year career, and we won 356 games. We uh, we had 34 nine-win seasons, so quite a run. Men five national championships. Has uh, Nebraska ever? I mean, uh, I'm I'm not real good on current football, but. Well, they should have stuck with the Big 12 and kicked some faces in. <laughs> it's down. Yeah, it's down. Uh, I, I had a question just about leadership. I love that this real deal group. In your weight room sessions, did you ever seek out an individual and challenge them outside of the written program to become more, more of a leader, more vocal? And what are some of those things that coaches can look for that see potential that hasn't yet been reached as a leader of a group? Well, I'm not sure if this answers your question, but we had a freshman named Kyle Vandenbosch who ended up playing many years yeah. in the pros. Played against him. And so mm-hmm. forth. Really a solid player. Really Had a really huge good. head. Huge head. Didn't like to shave it bald. Huge head. And he came in the first day after their first practice. And he says, and he had lifted a lot in high school, and he was not like a rookie at all. He says, Coach, uh, who should I work out with? Like, Who's worthy, you know, who's worthy enough for me to work out with? I said, that guy right over there is named Julius Jackson. He's a linebacker. You go work out with him. <laughs> Julius Julius was so strong that it uh, it made uh, Kyle Vandenbosch realize where, where he was and where he needed to get to. Mm-hmm. And so we had leaders on the team that took care of that motivation. And I hooked him up with Julius, and uh, they had a great, became great friends. And um, it was just the right guy for him at the time. Yeah, it is. It is a lot of reading the room and and finding pairs that can elevate each other. Because 
as you mentioned, you know, small group of coaches outnumbered by athletes, where can we mix and match racks to bring out the most people? You know, um, uh, something we've talked about on this podcast and something that I kind of hold dear. And I know in today's, I'm saying like today's world, it's not very coveted, but uh, shame is a kind of a powerful motivator and has been for me in terms of like not feeling that I wasn't able to keep the standard or seeing other people around me do better and like not necessarily shame, but like I need like knowing I need to improve. And, um, you know, that's a kind of an interesting thing is like a young guy coming in and seeing it like, you know, uh, like 17, 18 year old kid coming in and seeing these individuals who had, you know, been four or five years in the program and like almost like not necessarily shame, but like almost like emulation and seeing how far you can come. Uh, and then, you know, seeing the, like the way they work and having that example, I mean, it's so important and especially to have an established group, um, that that becomes, I mean, uh, like I, I sometimes wonder for colleges, like when guys are peeling out so quick, or let's say a guy's in three years or, you know, doesn't play for the full or has problems or whatnot, how quickly, a, a like a program can deteriorate because those people that should be those leaders end up just not being there or just not being good people. Well, with our history, we were able to, in our test testing and keeping track of the uh, scores, we were able to show a kid, I can remember meeting with Corey Schlesinger, who scored those two touchdowns in the fourth quarter against Miami. When he was a recruit, he was sitting in my office, and I, I asked him what his 40 time was, and I said, in this program, you, you will be likely improving yourself two-tenths of it. I called him 20 hundredths back there instead of two tenths. Um, for some reason that related to him better. Yeah. And uh, each of the tests that we do, he'd been in our football camp. I said, this is where you are physically on your performance tests. And this is where most likely you will end up as a senior. And those were pretty accurate because we had thousands of kids go through the program. We kind of knew what would be expected. But I wanted to, you mentioned it earlier in this uh, podcast, but the performance index that I must have shown you as a recruit, but I want to also mention the strength index because a lot of people get excited about testing and they go to these camps and they, they pay money to be tested and they go back a month later and they get tested again and they pay money and they go get somebody else to test them. There's a lot of that going on across the country today, but they don't realize how to improve those tests is in the weight room. So we have this strength index that identifies where you are talent-wise, potential-wise, called the strength index, and it's the hang clean and the squat. The bench press is so overrated, I don't even want to talk about it. So we took it out. We don't even test it anymore. The squat and the hang clean, based on what you weigh, will give you an idea of where you are physically. And as you improve in that, in the weight room, you will see an improvement in performance. So when Scott Frost, who's the head coach of Nebraska right now, was a quarterback, he looked like a linebacker playing quarterback. He was big and physical. And when it came time his senior year to test, uh, I asked him, how much do you want to, want to lift? Because I asked him to take a weight they thought they could do three to five times. So he said 300 pounds. Well, no one, no quarterback could ever clean 300 pounds. So he gets under there. I'm going, wow, this will be interesting. <laughs> he did it 10 reps. A quarterback cleaning 300 pounds, 10 reps is unheard of. I promise you. 
And so the strength index is what gets left out. And there's coaches across the country that use our performance index, but I'm having trouble getting them to realize they also need to look at what's going on in the weight room in order to improve those performance index scores. So those are available, like I said, at epleyadvantage.com. And I, you know, I'm not trying to make money. I give so much away free. Those are things that aren't priced too high that will help any program get better. What were, um, I mean, uh, as I remember the performance index, I mean, it was a vertical jump. It was 40-yard dash. I think there was body weight. There was squat. I mean, there was a whole bunch of different numbers. It wasn't squat. It wasn't squat. It was a 10 or 40, 10 and or 40 vertical jump and pro agility run. Okay. Those are the tests for football. Was was this the origin of the combine testing? Um, I don't know how the combine got started, but I helped them get electronic timing, and they they don't do it. They don't do it the way everybody else does. They I don't know that they want me telling telling this, but they screwed this up, and they've stick stuck with it. What happens when you do an electronic time, you put your thumb or your hand in in a beam or a switch. And when you lift your hand off that switch, the timer starts. And you run, and when you cross the distance marker, it captures the time that you run. The story is that the first kid uh, that came up to the line at the combine for the NFL happened to be a track guy trying out for a football team. And he didn't know how to put his hand down one hand like the football players do. He was a track guy, put both hands down. And the the coach was an older guy that had tested with a handheld watch for years, started just yelled at the kid, put your hand on the switch. And the kid was nervous, evidently, didn't know how what to do. And he yelled at him again, put your hand on the switch. Well, the kid had never done electronic timing. So the coach picked up the switch and said, you run and I'll push the button. So the kid ran, he pushed the button, and that's how they do it today. If you look at the NFL times, you won't see that button. You'll, you won't see the coach. He's off screen. He's at a table somewhere. When the kid starts to run, he pushes the button. And that is not electronic timing as we know it. And that is NFL timing. So any kid that trains at a school and knows what their time is, will run faster at the NFL combine. I wish they would get that corrected. Man, I'm sitting there trying to remember. I, I can't remember whether or not we had a uh, – I mean, I, I always know there was a timer. So I went down and ran with Tom Shaw uh, getting ready for the combine. And I remember we he had electric timing, and I remember we had a hand – like a, there, there was a, like a pressure pad you put your hand on. But I can't remember when I went to the combine – if, if we actually had our hand or if it was just some. It's it's too late to go back because then everybody would appear slower and then. Well, uh, but they do stupid shit at the combine. So what was hilarious was we were doing the vertical jump. And uh, when you go do the vertical jump and put your hand up like this. And so dudes were doing yeah. this. And, That's two uh, or three inches right there. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, uh, like one of the scouts got pissed and went over and was grabbing guys under the lat and lifting them up as high. And he did it for me and like three other dudes. And then, like, left, and everybody went back to doing it. And so, I think I verted, like, 31 and a half when I had been verting, like, 34. And I was like, fuck, this guy, like, 
Ah, if this you. guy could have got somebody else. And uh, but yeah, the <laughs> you know then, then the other one was um, we were doing the two twenty five bench test. And I was like the fifth dude, like there was a guy benching, there was a guy on deck and whatever. And all of a sudden the five guys in front of me all decided we're not going to do it. And they said, you're up. And I hadn't warmed up. Uh-huh. And then, and then they just put me on the desk. Cause you know, of course we can't wait. We're, we're in such a rush. So I, I laid down and as I went to do the first rep, the guy yelled at me, no rep, no rep. Right. Uh, cause he said I wasn't locking out. Oh, so when wow, we, that'll screw you up. Yeah, so that so I ended up with like you know twenty something reps when I'd been getting in the thirties pretty consistent, but it would have been nice to warm up because they had a coach who was spotting people on the warm up, giving them like, hey, this is what the rep looks like, and I was like, okay, hey, I'll do a few reps, we'll see what the reps want, then I'll go for broke, and then they were like, you know, you're up, and like all the you know, there's you're in this room, there's all these strength coaches who you know everybody's trying to should have done it naked, <laughs> yeah, like uh, the fake alphas, you know, everybody's screaming, everybody's got a yeah. shaved head and a goatee, you know. And, they uh, need to eliminate the bench press. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It has nothing to do with talent. You don't lay down when you play football. And um, anyone with alligator arms, that means you've got really short, stubby arms. It's going to bench press well. That's not what you want in football. You want length. You want linemen with long arms that can hold you back or push you around. So the bench press is, is just the, the wrong test for the sport of football. And uh, I think Brendan Stye did – 39 reps or something. He had the most at the time. Yeah. Um, he was a strong dude. He, he, he had he a huge a barrel chest. Dude. Yeah, he, he benched. Uh, I mean, uh, I remember him telling me he benched over 500 pounds. But I also remember him telling me that he couldn't bench press in the weight room. So they used to have to go down to the rec center to bench because you wouldn't let him bench. Well, I let him bench and try to break the record. The record was 500 pounds by Lawrence Pete, a middle guard. And Brendan did 480 like it was nothing, just boom. And so I said, all right, let's go 505. And he goes, no, I want 530 or something like that. It was ridiculous, 525 maybe, he said. And I said, Brendan, just go 505. You'll have the new record because your 480 was tremendous. He refused. He put on five and a quarter and missed it and never, ever achieved it again. And about that time is when we took the bench press out as a test. But he he was extremely strong on the bench press and probably the strongest bench presser as a football player Nebraska ever had. Lawrence P was pretty darn good, though. Did who, was, uh, who was the strongest? I mean, is there one guy you can look back on and say that was the strongest football player we ever had in Nebraska? Well, Jerry Hannon was a shot putter from Levittown, New York, and he ended up being a 1980 heavyweight uh, representing for the United States in the Olympics, and Jimmy Carter canceled the Olympics. But Jerry Hannon um, never got to play. He he was never quite eligible at that time of the year, and he was only eligible about one week as a track athlete and broke the conference record in the discus on his first throw. He was just a freak of nature, being strong. He wasn't really a, he wasn't really a football player. But they put him out. He would be like a guard, and it would just knock the guy down in front of him. I mean, knock him on his back. He was so strong. You can't you can't describe the strength this guy was born with. And uh, he, when he was a freshman, he came up to me and he says, "Coach, the track coach told me to have you teach me how to do the hang clean." He said, "I don't know what that is." I said, "All right, you go." 
This is when we only had one bar, one Olympic bar in the weight room. I said, go over there and get that bar and bring it over here where these pads are and we'll, we'll have you do, I'll teach you how to do cleans right here. Well, the bar, someone was doing deadlifts over there and it had 300 pounds on it. He says, coach, where do you want it? And I turn around and he's standing there with a <laughs> 300 pound bar. He had walked over there, got it and brought it over where I wanted it. I said, put it down, put it down, put it down. He was strong. <laughs> he was strong. <laughs> he was born strong. Is, uh, I mean, like, uh, I'm sure there's, you know, people that are outliers like him where they just for something, you know, wired up just different. But did you ever really, I mean, uh, you know, were there other people that you saw, like, I don't know if this kid's going to make it. And then somehow, you know, matured into something where you were like, wow, they did the work. The program works where you just, you know, uh, we would have never thought that this walk on grows on to be this individual. Well, the one that comes to mind was, uh early i mean early in my career and i had just getting started and i'm in the weight room and mostly working with injured football players i hadn't been named the strength coach yet i was still an athlete but i was helping these injured athletes and this freshman came in the weight room and he was he was i could see he was crying i said what's the matter his name is mike baron he had red hair and they called him red baron and uh he said, the coaches just told me that they're not going to allow me to walk on. And I go, well, well what's wrong? I said, well, I'm 180 pounds, and I ran the 40 and 5'5". Five five. And so they that wasn't good enough to even walk on as a guard, a football lineman. I said, well, one, one of your problems is you're so stiff. You can hardly move. You just – says a you know, there's some dance teachers over in the women's PE building, and they teach something called Danish flexibility exercises. So let me go over there and get some of those exercises for you, and then I'll help you in the weight room. So I helped him, and he ended up uh, being second team on our national champion in 70 and 71. There was a guy ahead of him, but he, he, was, uh, he improved more than – well, he ran a four six tenths, um, and at the time, no one, no one had ever heard of anyone that ever got faster lifting weights. It just wasn't recorded yet. People didn't know about it, and so Mike Barron, I I also had him enter weightlifting meets. He got, and I was entering too, so I could see what what it was all about. I won the state championship, but he got second. <laughs> in a 242-pound class. And he ended up gaining 50 pounds and improved six-tenths on the 40-yard dash. And so he was uh, – he, he says, I, he says I was your first creation. So he tells people he was my first creation. So I'll go with that. Awesome story. Yeah. Uh, what, what's your training look like nowadays? You still hitting the weights? Um, my birthday, my next birthday will be 75 and I'll squat 405 that day. And pole vault 20 feet. <laughs> I don't have a pole anymore, <laughs> but, uh, I squatted 405 on my 60th birthday. And, uh, then I did it again on my 70th. Then I did it again on my 74th and it's getting harder. 
So I've made a commitment to do that one more time on my 75th, and I'm going to cut that shit out. <laughs> enough of that. Enough of that. Yeah, that'd awesome. be enough. But I, I read somewhere where there was a, I can't even remember the name, but I, this was like when I was 60, I read where this 70 year old guy squatted 405 on his, his, I don't know, it wasn't maybe his birthday, but at his age. And I was impressed by that. And uh, so I said, I'm going to try to do that. And it was hard at 60. So anyway, I'll try to do it again at 75 and then that'll be enough. I'll one up that guy. Yeah, Pop Pop Soren, uh, yeah. Richard Soren, every year at Sorenex is his birthday, and then he deadlifts. Is it four or five? Well, he pulled like six hundred. No, yeah. he yeah. pulled six hundred, and then he pulled five hundred. I want to say it was at least was it was four or five hundred pounds. Uh, yeah, he's, well, I've seen him do it. Yeah, he's a, he's a great guy, very yeah. respectful. Very, he's always been a nice guy to me, and has a tremendous company, and is. Uh, his son Bert, they do it. They do a tremendous job, and they make products that are kind of custom to what you need. They, they do a good job. Yeah, we have a whole weight room full of it here at at uh, at our facility. So yeah, we're you know I'm a believer in the Sornick stuff. I wish their lead times were a little fat or were a little quicker, but uh, they're in demand and they're building these Taj Mahal type of weight rooms. So it's pretty impressive yeah. to see what they've done. But well, yeah, let me, let me put a little plug in for a company you might not know much about Matrix. Uh, when I retired, I looked around the industry and I thought about calling Sornex. I had uh, represented Powerlift before, Hammer Strength, Life Fitness, Mini Gym, Hydro Gym. I mean, all these different companies, Universal Gym, all these companies through the years. I thought, which which company would make the most sense for me right now? And I chose Matrix. They didn't call me. I called them because they have factories in five countries. And they make over 500 products for strength and conditioning. They even make that sized down with weights sized down, not big heavy weight stacks. So well, Sornex is catered to the hardcore lifter and has the matrix is more about the fitness and the cardio line is from another planet. That's where they've really helped people. But I'm, determined to get people to know who matrix is for strength training and uh, we'll see how that goes do you still do a little aerobic uh like a little bit of aerobic base or are you still purely no aerobic this kid <laughs> none never i'll tell you why um you go out in nebraska you have to shovel snow certain times of the year and people die. Even aerobic minded joggers will go out. And uh, when, when you get on a treadmill, your heart rate maybe goes up to 120 or something immediately. And it just purrs while you're walking on the treadmill. You do a set of squats and your heart rate will go up to about 175, 180, the first rep. Your heart's a muscle. And if it can't handle that spike, when you go out to shovel snow and it goes up to 180, you have a heart attack. So there are people that are joggers, they're in good shape, they can run five miles at a time, die shoveling snow. This happens. And so I, I'll use a snowblower. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you pay the local kid 20 bucks. 
I, uh, I'll tell you this. When I lived in Philadelphia, you know, I grew up in Southern California and then went to school in Berkeley. When I got drafted to go play for the Eagles, I remember I, I bought a house and we had a huge dump of snow. And so I went out the very first day and was like, you know, I saw the snow and I'm like, dude, I'm going to shovel all this snow because we had, you know, gone skiing and, uh, you know, hadn't necessarily lived in it. So I went out and I shoveled my whole driveway, shoveled everything. I'm out there in a T-shirt. It's snowing. Like, I mean, it was hot. And uh, I remember I get done and I have this like sense of accomplishment. And just then, like the local kid who's probably like 10, 11 years old, comes up on his quad and his dad had fashioned him like a blade on the front of his quad. And, cool. he, and he pulls up and he's like. Hey, I was going to knock on your door and see if you wanted me to, to, you know, plow your driveway. And I was like, how much? And he's like, 10 bucks. I told the kid, I'm like, here's the deal. Anytime you see snow, plow it, come knock on my door. I'll give you 10 bucks. And I did it once. <laughs> yeah. Feel- Our, uh, boy, I played lacrosse on the East coast. And so we'd have dump of snow every January. And that was our essentially conditioning, shovel the field for two hours and then practice for two hours. Uh, no weight lifting, but, uh, it's a little different sport. That was that was better than jogging around the field. Oh God! Yeah, you know I uh, I uh, I think uh, in like a balanced program, like you got to bang heavy weights. I mean, I like just going out and walking a little bit, putting on a weighted vest, and just kind of white, you know, hiking around in our place. I find that that's pretty good for me, just to get outside. But I'm right, man. Like jogging five miles and doing some like low, you know, low level endurance work uh, as your primary form of training just feels like a slow, slow death. There's a a program since I hooked up with matrix. I don't, I don't have it in front of me. I got it down in my weight room. It's called uh, sprint eight. And it's got the concept that I believe in inside of it. The guy's against aerobic training, but he, he goes for a three minute burst on a bicycle or a treadmill. And there's a rest interval in between. And I just got it, so I'm, I'm not up to speed on it exactly. But I'm going to give that a try to see because I think that's that's more what a heart needs is that burst and then recovery and that burst again and see how many times you can do that. I'll probably only be able to do it one one time at first. But um, but just getting on something for 15, 20 minutes is is nowhere near my wheelhouse. Not I'm mean, not interested at all ever on that. Yeah, you and me both. I uh, believe me. I, I, I uh, even when uh, we have an assault bike in our house, like an air bike, and I like to do intervals. I'll do like you know sixty seconds on, ninety seconds on, one hundred twenty on, you know, and then I ride easy for a little bit or put my feet on, use my arms, mm-hmm. and I end up doing intervals. Just uh, I found that for some reason. At, at night, you know, because we usually bang weights in the morning and then at night, like if uh, six or seven, like after I eat, if I go on and I just do some intervals, I tend to sleep much better. Mm. Like my sleep is night and day better. So it's to the point where like as soon as I get done, if I take a shower, like I'm, uh, like my kids are still kind of messing around or like seven, eight, eight thirty at night. I start yelling and I'm like, I want to be in bed by nine o'clock. Like if I can be in the bed before nine o'clock for the rest of my life, I'll be stoked. Well, one of the other things, uh, I think you're on the right track there, and I, I agree with that. But one thing I was going to mention as this came into my head was uh, the last couple of years of my strength coaching, I struggled with some basketball players being so tall and their backs are so long and they couldn't squat. And I'm a big believer in the squat, not, not like a power lifter, but for an athlete. And, uh, and so I've... I got uh, several of these bars. I'm not even sure what the official name is, but they 
they come over your shoulder and you could hold on to them in front. What are those bars called? Uh, safety safety squad, squad bars. Bar? Yeah. The, safety uh, squad bar? Yeah. Fred, okay. Fred, Fred Hatfield was the guy who, at least the first time I was exposed to one was via Fred Hatfield. And remember, he had the safety squad bar. Right. And so, um, so I started experimenting with those, with these basketball players, and then discovered that with these little short handles in a power rack, you can hold on and the bar can have weights on it and you don't have to have your hands on the safety squad bar. You can, but for these basketball players, particularly with their long backs, if they hold on to these little handles, they can squat down to the, almost to the floor. Mm-hmm. And they'll get so much more development in their back and legs. And it's not just their legs, it's their back and their legs. And so I started squatting that way. And I think it's a lot safer, especially for someone that's going to be, you know, 75 years old. And um, the problem for me is my weight room is in my basement. And my wife um, hardly ever goes down there. And so I'm down there by myself. And so it's not real safe. Even with a safety squat bar and handles, you're still, there's still a chance you, you could fail. And so I told Matrix that I, I wanted them to um, make me a Smith machine that had like handicap handles on it. So the Smith machine has uh, these safety levels, not a safety level, has multiple. So if you have to have to bail out, you can do it at multiple locations. But the one I have that they made for me, custom made, it has like what I would call handicap handles. Like you would see like in a, a bus and there'd be a, a handle there that you can hold on to to get up out of your seat. So you can you can put your hand where and you don't even have to hold on to the bar the bar is going to go kind of up and down in a track it's on your back of your neck like it like you would think but you don't have to hold because it's not going anywhere it's just going up the safety land handles and then um jump and rack the bar 405 on my 74th birthday was pretty easy doing it that way. I mean, and safe. Mm-hmm. So just throw that out there for older people. You don't have to use free weights that are a little bit dangerous when there's no spotters around. You can find a way to do it safely. Sounds like you need to get some training partners over there. <laughs> well, come on by. <laughs> so where, where are you living these days? Are you still in Lincoln, Nebraska? Lincoln, Nebraska. Lincoln, Nebraska. And I'd love to have you stop by. Okay. And we go down and look at the new Nebraska facilities that you haven't seen. Yeah, no. I, I'll take that as an open invitation. So we oh, know. yeah. That, that'd be a hell of a one to, to, to go see. Charles, you want to go to Nebraska and go film some content? Absolutely. All right, cool. He's excited. Uh, Boyd, final piece. For me, I had a great opportunity at University of Texas at the Stark Center, so the History of Strength and Conditioning Museum there, and Terry Todd uh, took Trey Zapata, a strength coach and and rep for Sornex now, in the back room. So one of the pieces not on display is one of your first bench presses, so this bright red, old school. The tractor jack. Yeah, benches is just waiting in the back, unused. 
I don't know how they're going to display it in this beautiful museum of freaking yeah. Arnold and Kaz. But uh, yeah, I was uh, they pretty honored. It. They they made in the front there where they have they call them icons. They're like I, I don't know how many there are, but they they asked me for a photo and they put me in as one of those icons along with some pretty famous people in the, the you know different industries. That was an honor. Then they asked about the the tractor jack because what I was looking for is. A, we had people like John Dutton, a player, a defensive lineman that played in the first national championship in 1970. His, he had seven foot one inch arm span. So his arms were extremely long. And then we had Lawrence Cooley, who was the first 400 pound bencher and had alligator arms. <laughs> and so when they would work out, we'd have to figure out a way to, to get the bar off the rack and I sent a letter out to Nebraska farmers and I asked for a tractor jack and I got like six of them free donated had a welder, but weld them into our benches. And so you could adjust the height of the bar and then, and then it worked for you or you could lower it or raise it. You didn't have to take the weight off the bar. Adjusted it. So they wanted that because it was the first adjustable bench that they'd ever seen. Then I went with AMF and made one from how they do parallel bars. They have a chrome thing that goes, has a handle that tightens it down, but then it has a spring loaded and it is a little bit too dangerous because <laughs> that spring could shoot up and we had a couple guys get, get hit in the chin with that. So we, we got, went away from that one. But I was always looking for adjustable bar. So Nebraska has, if you come to Nebraska, you'll see they have something called a transformer that transforms from a squat rack to a clean station. With a touch of a button, the safety, the bar catch moves electrically and the bar catches move electrically. So you just push a button, the bar goes to the height you want, you bring the safety level up. And then on a prototype, before I left, I had created a, a prototype that has the elite form unit, you push the button, what exercise you want to do, and those automatically adjust to your height. All you do is tell who you are, what exercise you want to do, and there it is. The future. So Nebraska's Innovation. got big time stuff. Yeah. Well, hopefully Scott Frost, uh, I, you know, Scott Frost played at, uh, at, at uh, Stanford and then transferred to Nebraska. And then went on, and he. I, I remember him because uh, you know, obviously uh, Stanford was a rival of Cal's, but I remember him transferring out. And then I want to say he played safety for the Jets. Yes. Yeah. What? What? When I was in Philly, so I, I knew who he was, and just you know, I mean, the fact that he had been a quarterback, and now all of a sudden he played. But I think he ended up peeling out after a bunch of injuries after a couple of years. But uh, yeah, I, I do remember him, and uh, yeah, he's gone on, and I know he, he had a kind of a rough beginning at Nebraska, but they've. I'm glad that they've shown uh, you know confidence in him and extend his contract he should do pretty good yeah they had a heck of a year this year they lost nine games and every single one of those games they were ahead at one point they were they were ahead and going to win the game and then didn't and that's the most unique unbelievable season i've ever seen they were ahead of michigan michigan was one of the final four teams and they were ahead of iowa by 21 points and still lost was incredible. 
Need so more long distance. Need, I was going to say they need better conditioning in the fourth quarter, so they better put in a mile and a half run for their conditioning test. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like they've been out distance running now. <laughs> but, but I know they're not. I know Zach Duvall is the head strength coach, and he's uh, he's doing a good job. And they're they uh, they just don't have the talent at certain positions that they need, and they're working on that. I think, according to today's paper, they have done better in the portal, the transfer portal, than any other school in the country at this point right now. They have beefed up the areas that they needed to from the portal this year. So that's changing the game, but that's how it's working. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, Boyd, thank you so much for coming on Power Athlete Radio. It was great to reconnect and also hear some of these stories. So if you guys want more information, you guys want to reach out to Boyd, what's the easiest way for people to get a hold of you? My email is boydepley at mac.com. And that email I mentioned a couple, or the website, um, they should check out epleyadvantage.com and we're in the process of switching over from something that my wife ran for years called epic athletic performance she's now a realtor and so she's we're going to shut that down and it's going to become epleyadvantage.com and there's a couple things that aren't it'll be about two weeks before it's all ready to go but if somebody wants something just have them get a hold of me and i'm happy to help awesome Yes. Well, cool. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. And thanks Enjoyed for the conversation today. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir. Thank you. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can find Boyd Epley on Instagram at Boyd Epley. Until next time, bye.